Welcome to Season 2 of the Parent Advocate Podcast, a show where we celebrate, defend, support, and uplift the voices of the LGBTQIA community. I'm your host, Stephen Chikumba. My pronouns are he, him, and his, and I'm joined by my amazing co-host, Lisette Trujillo. Hello, everyone. Lisette here. She, her, Aya. The mission of the Parent Advocate Podcast is to elevate conversations and reframe narratives around trans and non-binary youth to help change hearts and minds. Each week, we bring you our take on things happening in the world from the perspective of two parents of BIPOC transgender kids. Season two, episode two, Lisette. Who would have thunk we'd be in our second season already? I'm so looking forward to the show, Stephen. We've got a really special guest today, Nicole Bazorgmir. Wow, I'm looking forward to it too. Well, welcome everyone once again to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Let's get started. Lisa, 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 what's been going on? I know I ask you this every episode, but every episode you got something new happening in your life. Talk to me. I felt like I was living through you vicariously for a moment, but life really is amping up a little bit. We're back in ledge session, Arizona, always fun. So we have some anti-LGBTQIA bills, but super lucky that we have a governor that will veto them. We're also really, really excited at the potential of passing a statewide non-discrimination act in our state, HB 2645. So last week, Daniel and I went and spoke at the press conference after it was filed. We're just super excited about it. ACLU wrote this bill and it adds sexuality and gender identity to our statewide non-discrimination. So that's kind of exciting. Also, Daniel joined the Tucson Jazz Institute. Essentially, now Daniel has my Sundays completely filled up. So he goes and plays the drums at Reverend Lewis's church from 10 to 11. And then he's at the Jazz Institute for the rest of the day. Because that's what they'll do to us. They'll just take up our time like we don't have lives. (laughs) Like we have nothing else to do but be Ubers to these damn kids. I was like, what are you doing to me? So not only did he make us like church folks, but also... Now we're all about the jazz concerts, but it's fun. Daniel's like living for it. Also, what else happened? Did a whole center 42 on Sunday. So we did like a little celebration. Happy birthday, um, Happy birthday. And uh, I think for me, I've been having a lot of conversations with like different leaders in our city and family members and friends trying to get them to understand that January hasn't even ended and there's 367 anti-LGBTQ bills across the country. Talk about it. they, uh, I've had a couple comments of like, but does policy really impact us this way? Like just kind of like this, I don't, denial of like the onslaught of attacks that are happening politically so to it's our- esoteric. That's the yeah. thing. For many people, it's esoteric. It's a, a an ethereal concept. It's a far off principle that they do not see having any direct impact on themselves. The detachment, the cognitive dissonance is great. And so many people experience it. So like, I am, I am not surprised you're having conversations with people who are just like, duh, because so many people have blinders on to what other people in this world are experiencing. And I don't know how, I don't know how 800 something plus in 2023, we have five times more at this point. Well, not five, because it was only 90 in January of 2023 at this point. And it's 367. So it's like three and a half times more, but three and a half times more bills have been proposed 
in January than were proposed in the beginning of last year. I mean, I didn't think in 2022 when there was 121 bills, I couldn't fathom that they would go to the lengths that they're going to now. And so, yeah, so the advocacy work is in full, you know, full swing for us here. I have a meeting today. Um, they're getting creative and it's really frustrating. And I think, but I, I think I took, you know, August to December, although you and I were still doing this podcast to like really quiet myself, center myself so that I could have the energy to engage in these conversations. Cause it just gets exhausting. And like, I needed to show up differently for family and friends who are well-meaning and they just, they can't conceive it. They can't, they can't like conceive that this is so purposeful in its effort. They, you know what I mean? You want to believe the best yeah. in people. And this is just beyond yeah. that for them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Tell me about you. What have you got going on? Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Lisette, it's been a whirlwind. Just like you said, legislation has started up and all of this activity has started up again. I was just on the Kelly Clarkson show. I was in the audience yeah. with Peter and Lucina and Mariko as Kelly interviewed Dwayne Wade on his Oscar-nominated film and his other film, The Dads, that they ended up talking about for the rest of the segment. How did, did you take get... pictures? So you couldn't take pictures. You couldn't take pictures. <sighs> they were like, no pictures, but why does Kepta got a little video with my glasses? We're not gonna talk about that. <laughs> I love it. But it was, so So they actually had a photographer on set who like, he came over to us and gave me the bro hug and we did a little fingernail waving at each other. They got pictures of that. And then after his uh, segment with with um, Kelly was done, they brought us down from the audience. And then we had pictures with Kelly and D-Wade. It was just so nice. It was lovely. At one point during the interview, like they turned and asked Lucina, who's sitting between Peter and I, about how she came to the process and yada, yada, yada. And so the cameras turned to us. And we we're like, I don't even know if that's going to make the, 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 the actual episode. But we were all front row center up in that cut talking about the dads they had the like the poster art behind him so when he's talking the dad's poster is i was like man these people are gonna make me blush who would have thought when we were talking about at p-tech like three years ago that it would be this dude so amazing dude manifestation that's what we did we that's manifested right. That's what we did. So fuji turned 14 so i now have a 14 year old these kids getting older Next year, Happy he's going to be a high schooler. Yeah, so. What day is Fuji's birthday? It's the 26th. Oh, okay. All right. Plus, that was the 21st. Yeah, so they're both, what is that? Aquarius. Pisces? Aquarius, Aquarius, Aquarius. That's right, Aquarius. But maybe, but maybe. Artistic and gentle. Yeah. So no, he he's um he's an Aquarius because his mom's birthday was February 4th. So yeah, they had the same sign. But yes, gentle, loving souls. But yeah, he wants he wants salmon and a pound cake for his dinner and cake. And he wants um AirPods for his birthday and $25. Very, very specific sum of money. I was like, $25? I was like, okay, sure. Because I just- <laughs> You're like, what are you gonna so, get for $25? In my house, on your birthday, you get to pick a meal, you get to put what kind of cake you want. It could be ice cream, it could be cupcakes, whatever you want. He wants a pound cake. And then you get, you know, you get something that you want, some object, whatever, whatever. And so Chima, Chima just goes tattoos. Asha's quirky. Like it's, it's, you know, I got her some kind of furry animal bag, something she wanted, just something. And Hobbs, he got his car, you know, I went in half with his car. So like everybody asked for something and I helped you know, make their thing come true. So that's just a little tradition in our house. So this dude's 
he's about like after this, I'm taking him to the mall to pick up the AirPods, going to the supermarket to get the salmon and the pound cake, come home, make dinner, and that that's his day. Sing a little happy birthday, Stevie Wonder. The set, listen, we could talk about what's happening <laughs> in our lives all day, but before we lose track of time, we gotta get to today's topics. Let's do it. Okay, so the United Nations has been urged to investigate Texas's anti-LGBTQ plus legislation as a human rights crisis. I did not stutter. You know things are bad when citizens of the United States are appealing to an international body to allege civil and human rights violations. I was shocked when I saw this and grateful Florida needs to follow suit. And I mean, I don't know what will happen. We've never seen anything like this. We've never and seen so anything like this. I'm really curious to know how this stop, like if this is truly a stopgap in what is happening and the harms that our trans loved ones are facing. Yeah, I, I, I always, I'm always questioning the efficacy of international judicial bodies because it it comes down to what they can enforce. Now obviously this is this is unprecedented. This is unprecedented. We're not talking about people in South America. We're not talking about people in war-torn Africa. We're talking about United States citizens asking an international body to look at the violations of civil and human rights in this country. It's crazy. Yes, that that so much and also even though we keep saying that trans people make up two percent of the population there are a hundred thousand trans people that are impacted by the laws that have already been passed in 22 states right, right? that's almost half the country and so it's imperative that the UN step in. It's gotten to be too extreme at this moment. It's terrifying. Yesterday, the 19th published an article highlighting the latest bills to be filed across several states that would legally prohibit the recognition of trans people from public life. If passed, these laws would require transgender people to be misgendered in order to participate in day-to-day -day public life, which would increase risks to violence and harm. I can't even with this bullshit like i can't even what is the possible intention of passing laws like this why are you going out of your way to be mean this is unnecessary legislation there is no reason before you know 2021 there was only one law on the books of one state targeting transgender people at all there was only one it was like idaho or something yeah and today Sports. 26 states 26 states a mere three years later because 2024 just started but a mere three years later we are looking at an unprecedented number of laws targeting transgender people and a tsunami's worth more being proposed in just a month. I, I can't it's, even, I can't. Yeah, it's beyond me. I don't understand. I didn't, I couldn't, if you would have told me in 2015 that we would be here today, I would have been like, no, that can't happen here. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. But then it can. I mean, historically we've seen yes. that we've moved backwards, right? But I just couldn't have fathomed that like kids would become, you know, the fear that would move elections. But you know what's so funny? Because there, a, another report just came out challenging this narrative about regret that transgender people supposedly experience after having gender affirming surgeries. So there are these these things that the, the these legislators are saying about what's happening to 
trans people, but the reports like the JMA surgery, which stated that evidence suggests that less than 1% of people who undergo gender affirming surgery report regret. And that's compared to 14.4% of the broader population that reports regret after similar surgeries. So we're not even talking about other types of surgeries. We're just talking about people who regret this kind of surgery versus transgender people who experienced less regret for the exact same surgery. Exactly. And people really need to question what happens when you expand the state's ability to ban access to care? Because it's not gonna just prohibit transgender people from accessing care. Once you allow the state to step in and and like put prohibitions on what yes. can be done, parameters, that will impact so many people, yeah. you know? One of my favorite studies to come out came out last month and it was published by the Journal of American Sociological Association, which highlighted the crucial role of Thea's and aunties supporting their LGBTQ loved ones. The study noted that one in 10 youth from 18 to 25 experienced housing instability every year in the United States, and that 40% of those youth are LGBTQIA with Black and Latinx transgender youth disproportionately affected. The study showed that BIPOC extended family members were a central part in providing a secondary source of support, often taking their siblings' children into their home to help their LGBTQIA loved one from having to experience hardships. I really appreciated this study because it highlights the cultural importance of family in BIPOC communities, and it reminded me of like the core role that my sisters play in Danielle's day-to-day life. Absolutely. And it's funny because when I first came into this world of just being aware of how to support your LGBTQIA family member, I was so happy to stumble upon resources that talked about the importance of family. Because if you have a supportive family around your child, they are capable of anything. It's only when they don't have that frontline support that then the consequences of being trans in this society when people don't necessarily accept you impact you much greater because you can build up the sense of self that allows you to disregard anybody's criticism or observations of you. That's how we were raised. We were not raised to kowtow to how anyone thought of us, but we also had supportive parents who helped us form that sense of identity. So without having family members close, I can understand why students won't develop. I mean, I mean, I can understand how youth won't develop in this way, but it's, it's, it's awesome to hear a study talk about that positive power and influence of family so that you can express the importance when you're talking to family members. It's so important. It really reminded me of um, one of my cousins when they were outed, <laughs> went and lived with my grandmother. And you would think that that was not going to be a safe landing place, but my grandmother was older and you know, didn't understand what was like, you're coming home with me. And often that's what saves lives, right? That that family member being like, come into my home. You yeah. don't need to live or look for somewhere to live, you know? Yeah. We got so, you. It's interesting you say that because <laughs> as usual, we're getting all caught up in these damn topics, but we have got to get to our guests who can talk about what she's seen looking in the lives of families supporting their transgender youth. Let's get to it. 
Nicole Bazorgmir is an award-winning producer for Vice News, formerly Vice on HBO. She's produced programs covering a range of topics for the documentary series, including the Children of ISIS, the Constitutional Referendum in Turkey, Medical Breakthroughs in Cuba, and the Rohingya Refugee Crisis. She has reported from across the United States, Mexico, Iraq, Turkey, Ukraine, South Africa, China, and Bangladesh. Her piece, Transruth, won a front-page award from the Newswoman's Club of New York. Before joining Vice, Nicole worked on a number of documentaries for PBS, including for Frontline and American Experience. She holds a master's degree in international relations from the London School of Economics and Political Science. Everyone, please welcome Nicole Bazorgmier to our show. Welcome to the show, Nicole. We're so happy to have you. Thank you. I'm I'm so I'm honored to be here. Thank you for having me on. So Nicole, for anyone who knows anything about journalism and media, Vice is one of those media outlets that focuses on subjects and topics that mainstream media wouldn't necessarily cover or wouldn't cover with the same breadth and depth of Vice. Your work in particular seems to be much more focused on what many would call niche subjects like Black Lives Matter or LGBTQ plus rights, specifically trans rights. What draws you to the the work that you produce? Well, that's a great question. So I wear like a couple of different hats, right? As a journalist, I'm drawn to what are the biggest stories of the day? What are what are the things that are dominating headlines? What are people talking about? But in particular, stories or topics that are maybe being reduced to sound bites or just the headlines themselves. And where are areas that we can dig deeper um, and sort of look beyond those headlines and try to reach a wider audience because Vice has had a big, big platform on shows like HBO and Showtime and on Vice TV. How can we tell these stories in in new ways, in more nuanced ways, too? I think that uh, I've, I've always been really drawn to investigative work but also just character-driven verite stories. That's like sort of as a documentarian, that's what I'm always looking for. And I've also always been drawn to stories about about kids and about youth. And I think it's that's sort of a perfect um, place for a platform like Vice. It's very youth-driven, made by youth and for youth and covering youth. And I think that those stories very often get overlooked. And I don't know why. And then, like you said, they're sort of like niche stories, but they shouldn't be. I've never understood why those are kind of niche or, you know, sort of they, they kind of get sidelined in a way, I think, at some other companies and with some other outlets. But they, to me, are the most important stories, really illuminating what's happening in our country and around the world. And also talking to kids or young people, you get such a different perspective, unfiltered, and I don't know, they just say it like it is, right? And so those have been some of the most rewarding, interesting conversations I've had. So I think I just kind of keep, I keep going back to that because it keeps being interesting. I love that you say that because this is kind of like a broader question, but I love that you are saying how valuable youth voice is. Do you feel hopeful after seeing kind of all the things we've been experiencing in the world and in our country as we move into an election year? Do you feel hopeful at all? Like, yes and no. Probably like everyone's answer to that question, right? I think it's a question of what is what is the outlook 
of time that we're talking about. I think the next year in a presidential election year is going to be difficult on a lot of different levels. At the same time, when I do talk to young people, it's hard not to feel hopeful. You know, they are the ones who are going to be eventually running for office, running businesses, working more and more in media. I think we're already seeing among younger people such a, a much more diverse representation of people, of voices, of experiences, of backgrounds. And that's all like incredibly thrilling. And I do think that is longer term the direction that things are moving. But in the present moment in America, it's hard not to feel like the country is so divided and things are being pushed to such extremes. And in an election year that only gets highlighted and exasperated and reinforcing itself. So it's it's not a straight line. But yes, talking to young people, it is hard not to feel like things are, you know, trending in a in in a progressive direction. So you you've done a, a lot of justice work. You've done a lot of work really in the justice movement, shall I say. But almost seven years ago, about seven years ago, you were the producer of an episode um on of Vice News that aired on HBO about trans youth. And in that show, you talked to a number of families dealing with raising trans children in America and, and the myriad of issues that they have to deal with. As you reflect on that episode and now as a parent yourself and to your last response, where we are as a country today, what strikes you the most about where we find ourselves seven years later? Yeah, you know, I I rewatched that episode when you guys asked me to be on the show because I was just curious to take another look at it after all this time. And it's kind of dizzying to look back at it. So I started covering trans youth and these issues in 2016. And what initially, I knew nothing, I knew nothing about anything at that time. What I was initially drawn to just as a journalist was it was like all of these bathroom debates that was all over the headlines, that was all over the news. However, at that time, even though I should say like, debates around bathrooms, whipping up fear about bathrooms is certainly not new, right? That is rhetoric and arguments that have been used for so long. Who's in our bathrooms? Who's in our bathrooms with our women, with our white women? I mean, this is like really recycled arguments, but there was something about in 2016 that felt, it just felt sort of, it just felt so outdated in a way. And it didn't feel like it was really where the heart of this conversation is or the most interesting part of the conversation. And it didn't feel like it kind of had a lot of teeth to me. And in a way that was right because in 2016, those bills were not successful. That whole argument, I mean, what we saw in North Carolina, right? They they passed this bill and the backlash was so uh, swift and it was so strong. And looking back at really where the pushback came from. I mean, the NBA, NCAA, Bruce Springsteen, we're not going to play here. If you do this, this is discriminatory. PayPal, I mean, you had corporate America <laughs> responding to this. And because it put North Carolina in this situation so rapidly, a, a financial situation, um, there was so much economic loss that they were facing that the next year, they rolled back the bill. And in many other states, we saw those bills not pass. And it was just, it seemed like at the time, it was not like, it wasn't controversial to say, 
that you didn't think that that was, a, you know, a bill you wanted to support or something you wanted to get behind. To look at where we are today, where year upon year, the number of bills being proposed, the number of bills passing, it's, it's like I said, it's dizzying. It's, it's hard to imagine how we came to this point in such a relatively short amount of time. You know, I think there's there's obviously a lot of reasons for that, but I certainly never thought that <laughs> doing that story then, I never thought we'd be covering the kind of bills that we've been covering more recently or, you know, like a, a real sort of, for me, I felt like a watershed moment was in Texas when Governor Abbott directed the state's Child Protective Services to investigate parents for child abuse for for affirming their children and for gender affirming care. That was so like out of bounds of what I thought could be possible when we first when I first started covering this story. So it's 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 um it's it's just really surprising to look back at where we were and where we are now and kind of how the Overton window I think has shifted of what's like acceptable, the kind of rhetoric that's acceptable, the kind of policies that are acceptable. It's a lot. What's so funny is that it's only been 23 days and there have already been over 300 anti-LGBTQ plus bills introduced in this year alone. I just, you know, as you, as you were talking, I remembered seeing that statistic like a day or two ago. And I'm like, we just the, the ledge session just literally just started. How is it that there are over 300 bills already? Oh, my goodness. And what you're saying is so important because Daniel's social transition began in 2015. And I remember watching that piece when it came out in 2016 and sharing it with friends and family who were not on board. It showed Kai and it showed what was happening. And it was just, it framed it in such a way of like, these are young kids who are deserving of like going to school and having access to public accommodations. And I saw it as, this is going to be a step forward for us. Like just the way in which the backlash was. And, and Arizona was already that test state, right? In 2010, they tried to bring uh, that bathroom ban. But it's really important that you highlight like the escalation efforts around that, because just yesterday in our state, um, Senator Kavanaugh put forth like a bill referendum that's it hasn't been assigned to committee, but it would allow bathrooms to be put on the ballot across our state to override, you know, or to go around our governor's veto pen. Right. And so this debate and the lengths with which these politicians are willing to go is just becoming more and more extreme. And so it's there, like, when I hear you talk about it, there was like a hopefulness in 2016. I think we were like, okay, it's, it does, it's not going to be that bad. And then you have, you know, all these years later, and it's just gotten so much worse. And so my next question to you would be like, after all these years of documenting different stories, various voices, not just around trans youth, but like all these social justice movements, all people really saying we deserve more and we deserve better in this world, right? And youth voices saying, actually, we are not apolitical. I think it's really important for young people to be like, we're not apolitical. We're actually impacting this very distinct way. What are like some of the most important lessons you've learned from people that we can take forward with 
our, you know, as we think about how to be in the world? So all along the way, I've always been really amazed by the the kids and the families, the parents that I've met, even in these very stressful situations where you have these like huge external pressures have always found a way to find humor and find joy and always parents, including yourselves, trying to make life as like normal for your kids as it can be. And I was I was impressed by that when I started reporting on the story. Now, since becoming a parent myself and really seeing like being a parent is so hard. It is so hard on so many levels. And to imagine how you do that and how you create that environment for your kids, it just it it blows me away. And I think that those are that's something to emulate in so many aspects of life. And now I'm starting to see that more and more from, from the kids themselves, including your children, you know, planning trans prom, which I got to go to last year and seeing a group of teens decide that we want to flip this narrative and we want to change the rhetoric around around us and around our community that we are trans and non-binary kids and we are joyful. Like that was like the big word of that day for me was just joy. And we are going to celebrate and we're going to have fun and we're going to dance and we're going to do the things that kids like to do, regardless of what's happening, you know, in these seats of power. Like we are who we are and we're not going into the shadows. That is... I think one of the most powerful messages that you can put out there. And I think too, like talking about media coverage and journalism about trans youth, a lot of it, including work that I've done, you know, it's focused on the hardships, it's focused on the struggles because that's, you know, what communities are facing right now, but to be able to show the other side as well, that like, yes, we have, you know, we've transitioned and this is who we are and we're happy. We're happy, thriving kids. I think we need to see, more and more of that. And that needs to be elevated and celebrated. I don't know if that's like quite a lesson packaged up exactly like you meant, but that's, it's something that really sticks with me. It's interesting because that, that is in fact a lesson to be defiantly joyful. Like that's yes. one of the things that Daniel says and said that that has stuck with me because we are seeing so much it, immediately after trans prom, you did an episode on on families of trans kids seeking sanctuary in the wake of last year's really rampant slate of anti-trans laws. And you were following families that were essentially being forcibly displaced in the wake of many of these bills passing in multiple states. What was that moment like for you? You know, juxtaposed against kind of the joy that you felt at Transprom, what was it like literally watching families gathering all they had to escape persecution from states like Texas. Yeah, I mean, it's it's totally shocking. It's not something, you know, uh, political refugee stories. I think as an American, we're really conditioned to see those stories of people coming here. And this is the safe place. And to now see uh, 
they are political refugees having to move across state lines, or in some cases, families are considering and actually moving out of the country. I don't think it's something that we have fully wrapped our heads around what is happening. And I think there's still a lot we don't know about the scale. I just know from many of the families I've been in touch with over the years, anecdotally, it feels like a lot of them have left or are in various stages of planning when and how to go. And it's devastating. You know, a lot of the work I've done has been in Texas. And I think an aspect of the story that kind of gets lost a lot is, I mean, on the one hand, like financially, logistically, just picking up and moving is incredibly difficult, particularly like if you live, you know, on the coasts or, you know, in a more liberal state, I think the response to a lot of those families often is, well, why don't you just leave if it's so bad? And that's not that it's just not even an option for so many people for so many reasons. But on top of that, the families that I know that are from Texas, I mean, they love Texas. <laughs> they don't love all the political stuff that's happening, but this is their home. And a lot of them have deep, deep roots. I mean, generations of family that are that are from there. And so to have to pick up and leave that is uh, is is devastating. And I, I think I still haven't fully, like I said, like wrapped my head around the scale of, of how much this is happening and how this is going to also reshape, you know, the communities that they are leaving behind. Another thing I've always been sort of amazed by in Texas is the LGBTQ organized community. I mean, it's it's tight knit, it's powerful, it's big in a way that I think states that have already like greater protections, they don't have communities that are that organized like that. I mean, I remember last year going to Texas to see families that were testifying against HB 1686, a ban on gender affirming care. And, you know, in the Capitol, in their rotunda, it's like there's a huge rotunda in the middle and then there's four levels of balconies and it was packed. You know, it, it's 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 amazing that that's Texas, too. That's also Texas. And so I think, you know, people having to leave that behind and leave those communities behind, it's heartbreaking, it's traumatizing, and you don't get to the point of deciding to leave a place like that unless you truly, like, I don't want to, like, throw around big words, but I think many of those kids and their parents have been traumatized by by what's going on there, and they wouldn't have done it otherwise. I think what you're saying is really important. It actually feeds into my next question because our family was one of the families featured and we were honored to be able to share our story because my husband's an immigrant. He already crossed one border. And so the concept of having to consider leaving or saying, well, we're going to stick it out at the expense of our safety, I think was something that we were in constant communication about. But to be honest, I didn't realize how much I compartmentalized my life until I saw the episode and was like, oh, wow, I live that. Like, <laughs> that's me talking about this really horrible, harmful experience. And I've compartmentalized so much of that experience over the last five years living in a hostile state like Arizona. Um, and I think that I, I was able to compartmentalize because of community, the way that you're speaking about it, because we had a parent group, we were organizing on the ground out of necessity. And so it, 
what you're saying is like so key that you don't get to see it in like blue states where that struggle doesn't exist. And so I, I'm wondering what are like some of the key takeaways? Cause I know when I speak with other moms and other, like it's caused, uh, you know, health issues, right? Like things that we're not even thinking about that we're going to be able to maybe process if this ever comes to some sort of rational end. But what are some of the things that you have that you have been able to kind of thread together that you could tell other families are like the most important things when uh, trying to support their kids in this moment, whether they be trans youth or black youth or immigrant youth that are being harmed in this political moment? What do you think are the things that that lead to resiliency and and lessons you can give and share with youth? Who might be listening? Yeah, I mean, I only I, I've I've just been able to observe it and, like I say, kind of be in awe of it from getting to know people like you and your families. I think that tapping into the community resources that are around you, whether that's you know therapy groups or advocacy groups or just getting to know, especially for for. For young people, are there people around you that are like a little bit older too that you can talk to, reach out to on social media? I've also seen a lot of connections of of young people on social media across state lines, you know, becoming such close friends and building their own networks. I think the visibility, like visibility across the board has only increased. And that's a beautiful and powerful thing. And so, you know, I think you you can be on your phone, on your computer and tap into those resources and find, you know, find comfort and joy and community wherever you can. And I think a lot, Lisa, about because you, you taught me so much when we were getting to know you, you know, and you you talk about community and the the organized community and in Tucson being one of the first places with the non-discrimination ordinance, like this rich history that is a part of of your state too. But I think when you are living in a a hostile state or a hostile environment, you know, your body is going into this kind of fight or flight response. And that takes a tremendous toll emotionally, physically, psychologically. And I've just, I've, I've seen and heard from, from parents and, and kids just, I mean, the importance of reaching out for support. I mean, mental health support, all kinds of support. Um, I think you, you, you need that, particularly in these kind of circumstances in terms of like takeaways. I think that something that's been really shocking to me and what I hope doesn't get lost in any of the stories I've worked on is there are these political games being played. There's like, it feels like there's constant political maneuvers and even, you know, like you were saying, like getting this on the ballot in Arizona um, to override the governor. There's all of, you, you know, you think you have something sort of settled for a time and then there's some political maneuver to like bring the issue back up. And in these political games and in this rhetoric, there are real kids that are really being impacted every single day. I mean, it affects like, you know, it's hard to, you. it's hard enough to be a kid. 
It is so hard to go through adolescence. You could not pay me enough to be a teenager again. To have on top of that to deal with like this political uncertainty or to have to hear um, what people in power are are saying about you. It just adds such a tremendous burden on these kids and on their siblings. I mean, it's on the whole family, right? I just don't want that to ever get lost in the conversation that there's there's real people that are being discussed here. And they're, I've heard it said by other parents in, in various ways, but like their own existence being debated. That is very surreal. I, I can't imagine what that's like to hear over and over again. And 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 I think that's what I just, I never want to lose sight of in this reporting is like the people that are at the heart of this. It's why we wanted you to meet our family, right? And that that you met such a small segment because my husband has like, he's the youngest of 10. But we wanted you to meet our family and to see like Daniel in this like very loving dynamic with people who cared about him. As we talk about the importance of family, Recently, a study came out that showed that aunts, tias, you know, like aunties are like so important uh, to LGBTQIA people and how often they too are like this secondary parent that's like coming in to support them. And so when you're talking, you know, just to kind of echo what you're saying, these are really real people loved by people being forced out of their homes or their states, because like I'm thinking about that again, too, right? Like I'm like, if Trump wins again. And Project 2025 comes into play. What do we do? Like, where, where, where will it be safe or not safe? I'm grateful that Daniel's going to be 18 in two years. And that be the end tail end of Hobbes's, you know, time in office. But at least he'll be 18. Maybe. And have, like, some protections, right? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Look at what's happened so, in Ohio. Yeah. And then I feel guilty. Because, again, community, right? Like, I have so many families in our parent community where their little ones are like seven, eight, eleven, and there's so many more years before them and like their well-being to have to live through this every year. So it's just so important that you keep, I know you keep echoing it, and it's my compartmentalization <laughs> coper to be like, yeah, like we're doing this thing, but it's it's part of life now. And so thank you for reinforcing that it, these are just we're regular people living this moment, you know. So I actually have a question. See, see what what she did there. She just she was just talking, no question. I actually have a question. <laughs> so, Quill Hayes. Exactly. <laughs> We're going to give you a pass, <laughs> hard pass for sickness yeah. today. Nicole, you have covered just social justice issues across the globe, beyond the United States, where you've seen similar tactics, similar efforts to deprive people of their rights, pitting the have-nots against one another in insidious ways invariably often driven by the right, the Christian right, the fascist right. What are some of the ways in which people should filter the content that they're seeing, reading, learning about, that will help them to both fight back against disinformation and misinformation and to recognize when they're being fed a line, essentially, that is just not true? Oh my gosh, that's such a good question. And I wish I had a really sort of solid, neat, answer to it. I think that and it's also so hard because I think a lot of times people don't want that, right? That's a huge part of the hurdle. They want to hear what they want to hear. And so they seek out self-selecting news services or, you know, things I wouldn't classify as news to get their their information. And so how to overcome that 
that is really, really challenging. I, I feel in in the work that I've done, the 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 comments that have always been the most rewarding and and fulfilling for me is when you know somebody says something like when my kid was was starting their transition and our extended family didn't understand I I sent this to them I showed it to them or someone reached out to me after seeing this piece who I had cut off ties with and is now starting to rethink you know because we make these pieces to reach a wider audience you know that is the most that that's like the best thing that I could hear in terms of how to be selective about where you're getting your news. I mean, I think step one is you you should be getting your information from a lot of different places. And you can't focus on just one outlet or one news station. I think you have to be really careful on social media. It's not really the place to get the news these days, right? I think that a lot of these platforms have just gotten more and more toxic and Things are parading as news, in fact, and information that are not. I also think that you brought up, you know, Vice at the beginning, like what we've what we've covered. And I have to say, like my company has always um, really supported our our executive producers and our showrunners have always supported this kind of storytelling. I have these aren't stories that I've had to like fight, like let me tell this. Like, you know, it's like it's been supported kind of from the get-go. And I think both sides or what aboutism is not the same thing as truth. And looking for uh sources of information that certainly go beyond that. Um, because if all you're being presented with is, well, you know, one group says this and one group says that, um, there we are, you know, case closed, then you're you're not getting the deeper information. Look for places that will regularly provide context and historical context and kind of get into the nuance of things. Nothing is so simple or straightforward. And if it seems like it is, then then it's probably not you're not getting the whole picture. But in terms of like, practically, I wish I could say like, here's steps one through three of how to make sure you're doing that. I don't know. You know, there seems to be a real, I think there's really a need, especially with with young people in schools and in colleges to talk more about media literacy. That is really clearly lacking these days. But that's uh, in terms of how to teach that. I don't know. I don't know. I wish I had a, a more clear advice, but it is something we need a lot more of. I also think old, and the older generations need media literacy because oh, yeah. there's so much that they just kind of are like, you know, you see that a lot on Facebook. They're, they don't know how to discern the differences between like an actual news outlet versus like an opinion blog or they they can't discern what's real or not, which is really, I think, put us in this really scary and precarious political moment. But Stephen's going to tell me no. So let me get to my next question. No, but completely though, but just to what you're saying, it's like, they're also like, you might start watching something that is a legitimate news piece, but then there's like a pop-up of something else that's yeah. something else entirely. And I think that like 
causes further confusion to the situation. Yes, I couldn't agree more. More with the older generation probably than the younger generation. Something about media literacy and accuracy and, um, you know, disclaimers on what you're, you know, what is the source? What is the source of the information that you're getting? Um, how do you track that back? I mean, that is hugely important. Okay, I have to share this really dumb story and Jose is going to hate me for it. But like in like 2016, he was up at like three in the morning and um, it was when the History Channel was still like really prevalent in showing like different like, you know, the alien shows. And um, and so he wa- he woke me up the next day and was like, dude, mermaids are real. And I was like, what are you talking about? Mermaids are real. And he's like, no, no, no. I was up at like two in the morning. I couldn't go sleep. And this documentary on the History Channel came up about mermaids. And I was like, shut up, what? And then like he went and we Googled it. And in the beginning of the intro in very small like letters, it said, this is not a real documentary, right? (laughs) But it was presented as like this factual thing. And they were interviewing people and they showed videos and it's like, it was called mermaids or something. I don't know. I'll have to find it for you. And so I felt like that was kind of like the beginning of like this. And now with AI, we're, we're able to see like, all the ways in which things can get manipulated. Like someone like my husband being like, wait, maybe mermaids are real. And I was like, I think they played you on this history channel. I have to jump in (laughs) and reset because I saw this. I mean, they're called deep fakes now, but it was like Tom Cruise acting really crazy with like one of the Key and Peele guys where he like like bunny hopped over a guy and was all crazy. And it wasn't until years later that I saw the actual actor who did that that had his Tom Cruise's face superimposed on his body mm. doing those things, but it was his voice and it was all the things. And it's like, if you are not discerning and you are not aware of the ways in which technology can be manipulated, where information can be manipulated, you can easily go down these rabbit holes of disinformation where everything seems true. And and it's it's very difficult as a journalist to say, hey, you should X, Y, and Z because since when did you become more trustworthy than the next? And once you start engaging in these disinformation wars, this legitimacy veracity wars, it's very difficult to know which end is up. It's totally it's just, disorienting. Yeah, it's disorienting. And then having lobbies and, you know, I'm having lobbies create toolkits that are like, go to your local school board. Here's all you got to say, right? Without ever really having to think through it and to think about who you're harming or if it's real um, makes it all so much harder because information is just so accessible. And so, yeah, thank you for letting me share the mermaid story, but here's our next question. (laughs) As a family dealing with the issues impacting the families of trans kids, we've had to come up with ways to protect ourselves, both physically and emotionally. But as a journalist dealing with these same issues, how are you protecting yourself from like the impacts that you're feeling like are you empathetic of the content that you're creating like do you feel like how do you shake the stories off at the end of the night Mm, I mean I, I I don't think that I shake them off I think that you know working in journalism and and hearing difficult I mean I think like secondhand trauma is real and I think in the journalism world it's something we're kind of only just starting to talk about and understand more. And it's really, it's it's so important to take the time to properly process what 
you're hearing and like, what is the impact that it has on you? Because for a long time, I didn't do that. I would just sort of barrel through onto the next thing. And it, it wasn't actually until I was having a conversation with someone and I was talking about like, I've been having a lot of like these particular like nightmares lately. And, but I didn't think anything of it. And they were like, don't you think that has anything, you know, this was like right after I'd come back from a, a trip in Iraq. Don't you think it has anything to do with that? It, you know, I was covering child fighters vices there. And it I, honestly, like it didn't occur to me that that was a way of me trying to process, you know, what I was seeing and what I was hearing. I think that I, 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 I have to go to therapy. I have to seek out, you know, help and have my community and have my colleagues that have become my, you know, some of my closest friends to talk through and process it with them. But the reason for me, it's so important to take the time to do that for myself is because I don't want to burn out. I think that's very real. And I want to keep telling these stories and I want to be able to approach them, you know, with the same level of openness and heart as I did, you know, in the very beginning when I was just learning about so many of these things. Um, I think that if you become totally jaded and cynical, I mean, cynicism, you know, it's a way of sort of like kind of protecting yourself, I think, in, in the moment. But to be able to approach these, you know, doing these stories, like people are letting you into their homes, they're letting you into their lives. They're sharing the most vulnerable parts of themselves and what they're working through in real time and sometimes sharing real traumas and pain. And like, if they have the courage to do that, the very least that I can do as the journalist or filmmaker in their home is like meet them with the with the level of openness and empathy that they deserve. And so if I ever get to a point where I feel like I can't do that, then I think I need to stop and at least take a break and figure out how to get back to that. Because I think that's what the people that you're covering, that is like the least of of what they deserve is to be able to meet them in that space and and on that on that level and hear them. When I was doing research for this interview, I watched a lot of the work you created. And I was really struck by the humanity, the empathy, the care with which your subjects were captured and the stories that you told. And understandably, you've won a lot of awards for the work that you've done. Outstanding news discussion and analysis, outstanding coverage of a breaking news story in a newscast, outstanding research and outstanding investigative research in a newscast. I mean, you've clearly put the work in to get these accolades, but what does it mean to you to have work in this space, in this social justice space recognized? Well, thank you for saying that. First of all, that really that really means a lot to me. I think that when you're when you're doing this work, like you're really you're not thinking about the awards or the recognition, but when it happens, particularly for these kinds of stories, and these stories like circling back to the beginning, these underreported stories and underrecognized stories, it just feels like um I don't know. It feels like extra reward rewarding um, because these are people that and stories that you come to care, you know, so much about. And it feels like if these kinds of stories get recognition, then they're also getting more recognition in the public sphere as well. You know, it feels like a sign that people are really connecting with these with these stories that just that always feels really good 
But I think, you know, like I sort of mentioned earlier, it's actually the conversations that like individuals have had with me about how things have impacted them or changed their point of view. That's where I'm like, oh, yeah, like this resonated, like this really landed in a meaningful way. And that's um, like, I think that's like what we're just we're trying to do, right? We're trying to tell these stories or rather, I mean, like get out of the way to let other people tell their stories. <laughs> in a way that's how can we do it in the most impactful way and in the widest reaching way that's like that's it that's like the name of the game it's the one time my husband was like for real starstruck because he watches <laughs> vice news so like religiously and so normally he's like yeah yeah we're lizette has this things that we're gonna do for advocacy and then he got on the zoom and you and gianna came on and he's like oh my we're going to be like on a legitimate vice news story. I was like, yeah, what did you think? What did you think I was telling you? So it's, I think, I think for him, you know, after we got off that zoom, he was like, I feel, he told me, I feel like it will be a thoughtful story. Cause often, I mean, we're scared to talk to journalists because you never really know what it's going to look like or if they're going to take the conversation and whittle it down to these very like out of context quotes, you know? And Daniel has said this too, like it was one of the best experiences for them because they felt like there was such care and love and like in the three days that we were with y'all, you know? And it meant a lot to Daniel. And so I think, and and just to talk, you know, to kind of talk about burnout, I think I really experienced that in August where I was just, I was like emotionally tapped out and I had to kind of center myself. And, and there was a conversation I had with you and Gianna in the van driving to bring food to the warehouse. And um, I, I had to keep recircling that quote that Gianna looked at me and said, you have a really incredible life. It's like really full, like you have this great life. And sometimes we that gets lost on us when we're in middle of like the panic of like the newest bill that's dropped. Right. And so I, I know I've had to hold on to that and be like, our life is really full and our life is really good. Cause sometimes I'll think what trauma is Daniel going to walk away from and like, like have to deal with, you know, 10 years from now. And so I have to keep remembering, no, like we're doing all the right things to provide like a good stable home for Daniel, where this can be minimized in some sort of way. Hopefully we're minimizing it in some sort of way. So I'm always appreciative of that small conversation we had I know it impacted me in a bigger way I've talked about in therapy I'm like I have to remember that our life is good because sometimes it feels so scary so thank you for being so thoughtful in my home and for you know loving my family and telling our story in such a thoughtful way it meant a lot and congrats on all like the honors y'all have gotten on that no thank you I mean thank you for letting us in and I think as you know as sort of an outsider and maybe it has something to do with how you compartmentalize like you're saying but you know, your your home is just, it's such a happy home and it's full of so much love. And then getting to know your extended family and seeing that dynamic as well. And just, you know, you guys have fun. Like it was really, it was really fun being there. You have fun with each other and there's a lot of laughter. That's, you know, sort of to one of your earlier questions, like that is what has stuck with me. And it's a dynamic I've seen in almost every house that, that we've you know, been allowed into is like, there is for all the heaviness that you have to deal with, there is so much joy, um, going back to that joy idea and joy as its own form of resistance, right? Um, 
it's 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 really powerful um and i'm i'm so happy to hear that that's you know how you felt coming out of the experience because i know there's always things you know when when you're doing documentaries or when you're doing news like not everyone is going to love everything that they see um and things get cut down so much i mean we were with you for three days we were filming like non-stop you know and then that <laughs> becomes a 20 something minute piece with other families in there too and that is the thing that i mean plagues me when we're finishing stories and when we're editing stories is you know not is everyone gonna like every single thing that's in there but are they going to feel that we represented their truth accurately that it that it was fair that it looks you know it looks like what they feel their life is that's so important to me and it's it's for me that like the scariest part of the process is are we going to be able to do that are we doing that right are we doing this story justice that it deserves it feels great to hear that that you guys felt that way after watching so nicole we are coming up on an hour Yes. And mm -hmm. there's one question that Lisa and I like to ask our guests. And as you are a new parent and about to be a parent, do um, <laughs> what are three pieces of advice you have for parents who might be worried about their children's future? And what can they do to help raise kids that will help shape a just and better world? Oh, my God. These are really big questions, guys. I'm new to this. I only have a three year old. I don't know. <laughs> but that's why that's why this is a good question to ask you because you will have to raise children in yeah. this world and you do have a lens on life that is informed by your work. And so I think this is a perfect question for you that you are probably not prepared for, but sucks to be you. <laughs> Answer the question. Okay. I think that, um, I mean, something that I grew up with that has totally shaped me and my career choices and my worldview is just being exposed to lots of different people and different cultures. I mean, my parents, you know, went out of their way with me and my brother when we were growing up to make sure that like we traveled as much as we could and saw different places and saw different things and to feel a connectedness to all kinds of people and walks of life and places. I think that is, you know, where I get a lot of my empathy from. I think that's where I get a lot of my curiosity about the world from. Um, there's so much out there and try to, however you can, expose your kids to that and expose yourself to that. I love to read. And I mean, that's sort of like, it's, it's similar. It's sort of an offshoot of that. But I I try to read as much as I can and now with my daughter I try to read with her as much as we as much as possible you know we're always going to the library picking out different books I mean just explore um pick things up but ran you know see where see where it takes you I think and I you know we don't have time to get into all this whole thing but you know there's so many parallels between the attacks on the trans community and what's happening with uh, controlling what's in schools and library books and, you know, seek out those books, seek out all of those books and see what's out there. And then my third piece of advice, I guess I, I'm going to sound really repetitive, I, I suppose, in this conversation, but I, I just keep coming back to that joy idea and joy as resistance and joy as your own and something that nobody or no entity can take from you. Keep that, keep that for you um, to instill that in yourself and your kids. It's easier said than done. I can't really always do that myself, but it's, I think, something for us all to work on 
and all to strive for. Oh, I love those three. Thank you so much. I agree a thousand percent. Thank you. This has been such a nice conversation. I'm so I'm so happy to to talk to you guys. Thank you for having me on. We are yeah, honored thank you. that you accepted our invitation. <laughs> we are so grateful that you spent this time with us. I'm looking forward to whatever your next project projects are because you have just this amazing capacity to capture you know the essence of storytelling really well and even when you have three days that you condense into 20 minutes with multiple subjects you manage to do an incredible job so thank you so much for joining us today and we wish you and your family all the best thank you now it's time for our recurring segment, Allies and Assholes, where we highlight individuals or groups that are supporting the LGBTQIA community on the one hand and call out straight up assholes who are trying to move us all backwards on the other. Lisette, who are we talking about today? Well, Stephen, our ally of the week is one of my favorite comedians, Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell's documentary, Will and Harper, debuted at Sundance Film Festival to a standing ovation. The documentary follows Will and his best friend and fellow comedian, Harper Steele, who recently transitioned as they take a cross-country road trip together. Will's documentary is both heartwarming and funny as these lifelong friends talk about bottom and top surgery, misgendering, body dysmorphia, and the fears Harper had before coming out. When we were on set with uh, D. Wade, Lucina and I were kicking, and she was talking about how she was. She just got back from the Sundance Film Festival and all the great queer films that she saw, and the films that she says, you know, wait till you know they come out. You actually have to watch them. And one of the films that I happened to hear about just on the rip, I didn't even know it was it was, it was premiering at Sundance was this documentary that Will Ferrell did with his best friend, Harper Steele, where essentially they take a road trip together. And this, this Harper Steele is his OG friend, like 30 plus years in the comedy industry, going on the road together and just talking about the fact that she's now his girl riding, you know what I'm saying, taking this road trip together. And he knew this person as somebody different and how he accepts her inviting him in. And they continue to have the relationship that they always had just now with him respecting who he's seeing. And it's so different from what Dave Chappelle did. When Dave Chappelle was talking about The Closer and he was talking about his friend and how he had his relationship and how he continued to misgender her and it was a but it was the butt of a joke and how his friend always accepted that. And I'm like, see, see how Will Ferrell is doing it? Do you see the compassion, empathetic, respectful, loving way that he's doing it? He's not making Harper the butt of his jokes. He's not trying to get people to agree with his stance on trans people through this faux relationship, I'm going to call it, because as much as he thought he understood them, he didn't because it's still his way or the highway. So I was like, wow, I, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing the films coming out of Sundance. I'm looking forward to seeing this uh, Will Ferrell film. I'm just looking forward to seeing people see different stories and different narratives around the experience than what these fucking lobbyists are pitching to senators and elected officials across the country that are just fucking shit up, that have you fucking with 367 bills and January's not even out on one subject that affects like less than 2% of the U.S. population. I'm also really, really excited because I feel like Will Ferrell has a broad reach, right? Yes. And this yes. is an opportunity for people who are on the fence 
around or just unaware and ignorant around trans issues to watch someone they admire and love and think is funny on screen learn how to be an ally and support his best friend right absolutely like they can learn through him and i'm kind absolutely. of excited to see it too i am so looking forward to seeing this movie because it's a frank discussion between people who clearly care for one another trying to achieve a level of understanding about what each is going through. And I'm so happy Will Ferrell made this movie as a foil, really, to Dave Chappelle's warped perspective on trans people. And this is why Will Ferrell is our ally of Okay, congratulations to Will Ferrell. Now onto our asshole of the week. Our asshole of the week is the Ohio legislature. The Ohio Senate voted on Wednesday to override Governor Mike DeWine's veto of HB 68, which bans gender-affirming care for transgender youth and restricts transgender participation in sports. The Ohio House previously voted to override the governor's veto on January 10th. Now, these two votes to override means the governor's veto is void and the law will go into effect in Ohio, and it effectively outlaws physicians from providing gender-affirming care to transgender youth in the state. The law includes restrictions on medical professionals' ability to diagnose gender dysphoria, saying they can only do so with the consent of a parent. Stephen, I know that you and I feel this so heavily, and our hearts are with all the families who are impacted in Ohio today. And this is why the Ohio legislature is our asshole of the week. Well, that's our show for today, folks. I want to thank today's guest, Nicole Bozigmir, for joining us today. And of course, I always have to big up my co-host, Lisette Trujillo, for always rocking with me. Thanks, Stephen. You know I got you. And of course, we couldn't do this without all of you, our listeners. So thanks for tuning in to the Parent Advocate Podcast. And folks, please be sure to like, subscribe, follow, and do all the things to stay up to date with everything going on here at the Parent Advocate Podcast. Goodbye. If you're thinking about harming yourself, get immediate support. Please reach out to The Trevor Project and connect to a crisis counselor 24-7, 365 days a year from anywhere in the United States. It's 100% confidential and 100% free. You can get help at thetrevorproject.org. If you'd like to support any of the organizations working actively to support LGBTQ people, please visit the ACLU at action.aclu.org or the Human Rights Campaign at hrc.org. You've been listening to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Tune in again for another episode.